Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Welcome back to our podcast series. Um, today we have Dr. Henry Pretorius, an HPB surgeon at Steve Beaker Academic Hospital. And our topic for today is going to be primary liver tumors. Welcome, Dr. Pretorius. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dr. Pretorius, what are the types of... Important to remember, even though we say they are common, they are actually still rare. They're just common in comparison to the other primary liver tumors. Also to remember that in, when we talk about primary liver tumors or liver malignancies, they have to originate from hepatocytes. And we know that the liver has got many structures that run through it and form part of its function, such as the biliary tree, the vasculature. But for, when we talk about primary liver malignancies, we, we were talking about malignancies that originate from hepatocytes. Um, so your most common primary liver malignancy would be hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC, and I think that's also the most important one for students to know about. The other ones are extremely rare, but it's maybe good just to know of them, such as fibrolamyrid HCC, which is a lot like HCC, but maybe not, doesn't have alpha-beta protein, and a good prognosis. And then the other ones are tumors that are found in the liver primarily, but they couldn't find another primary source, such as epithelial hemangia epitheliomas, angiosarcomas, lymphomas, and so I think that maybe let's just chat a bit about hepatocellular carcinoma. Who gets hepatocellular carcinoma? People um, that tend to get this are people with underlying risk factors. Uh, they are also found mostly in, in men in the age of 55, mostly because they have much of the social risk factors. Um, um, the most common risk factors are the And some of the other risk factors? Most of the risk factors are things that cause cirrhosis. This would be hepatitis C, alcoholism, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease actually can cause HCC prior to becoming cirrhotic, but then also non-alcoholic fatty hepatitis. And hepatitis B is one of the few causes that can give you HCC without cirrhosis and associated with a higher viral load. How do patients typically present with HCC? Underlying risk factor usually has cirrhosis. These people have some features of liver failure. So, they, And if this suddenly worsens, this must really put you at thinking of this patient might be having an HCC. Other signs can be slightly non-specific, which is associated with most malignancies, things like weight loss, general malaise. But specific to HCC is just the fact that it's in the liver, they can have a mass in the right type of patient. If you have a patient in clinic that you are concerned may have an HCC, how would you go about diagnosing them with the disease? A lot of times a patient has an underlying risk factor and therefore you screen the patient. And that's actually the most common way to find HCC in the at-risk population by doing ultrasound etc. So now once you've seen that there is actually a mass on screening with an ultrasound, we can order more imaging as well as to do some serology. The serology that we do for HCC would be alpha-fetal proteins, and if that's, that's raised that's in adults, that's quite a difficult And then on your imaging, you want your classical imaging features. And what are the, the classical imaging features of an HCC? When we talk about imaging, we've got our three main modalities that we, that we mostly use for liver imaging. So we usually always start in ultrasound, 
It's quite specific if it says it's an ATC, but on sensitivity-wise, it's not that great because there are areas of the liver that can't be reached easily, like posterior or near the diaphragm, etc. But the first thing is it's a solid lesion, and it's, it's isoechoic, which means it's the same as the liver. Um, but it may also contain some hypoechoic areas, which is usually areas where there's been central necrosis in the tumor. Most malignancies have ill-defined causes because that's because they infiltrate the tissue. In addition to your normal ultrasound, some centers have what we call contrast-enhanced ultrasound, and that makes the specificity of the test extremely good. Not always available, but when it is, it's great, and it will have similar features on the ultrasound as we will discuss on the CT. So when we do CT scanning, the most important thing is to look at the different phases of it. So with HCC, we look at in the pre-contrast phase, it will be isodense with the liver, which means that it will look much similar to the surrounding liver. When you keep the contrast and you do scan the arterial phase, HCC is predominantly arterial blood supply. That you get this blood supply from the portal system, therefore it will enhance very early before the liver does. So then in comparison to the liver itself, it appears more white on the CT scan. But also because it doesn't have the portal venous blood supply, but when you look at the portal venous stage, when the liver is enhanced, the tumor no longer is, and it has washed out, and therefore it will appear as hypo things in the portovenous phase. In the, on the MRI, the last modality we usually use for liver imaging, as sensitive and specific as a CT would be, if you do not use liver-specific contrast. The problem with MRI, it's very expensive, takes a lot of time, so we usually keep it for people who do not have, who have a contraindication to doing a CT scan, such as property or pregnant ladies, etc. So on the MRI, these lesions would classically have a T2-weighted imaging will have high intensity and a T1-weighted imaging will have a low intensity. When you add liver-specific contrast, same principle applies as to the CT angiography, where in the arterial phase the lesion would enhance, but not in this case because it's liver specific. So it will just stay high coding, whereas the liver enhances in the portal venous phase. They become very clearly evident. So I'm going to put you a bit on the block. Can you tell me in one or two sentences how do you diagnose HCC? We're looking for a hypervascular lesion on CT or on MRI which has an early arterial enhancement and early venous washout with an alpha-fetoprotein on serology of more than 400. I've not mentioned biopsy because we do not biopsy these lesions. So Dr. Pretorius, how would you approach the management of a patient with HCC? We would like to first look at specific things. One, we want to know what is the underlying pathology, so in this case it would be HCC. What is the patient's liver function, so the status of the the rest of his liver to be able to do the job. And the third thing is, is this patient operable? So what, what is the patient's performance status? And taking that into account, how would you now approach the resectability of a patient with HCC? The system we use, which is called the BCLC, which stands for the Barcelona Clinic of Liver Cancer, they created a very nice guideline on how to manage patients with HCC. In, the, in those guidelines, we talk a lot about transplant, which is the main goal to, to curing. But in South Africa, we've got a scarcity in organs, and it's 
rare to transplant the patient for HCC in South Africa. So it's good you ask about the resectability. Because these patients usually have underlying liver pathology, it's seldom that they are actually resectable by major resections, especially when there's cirrhosis, it's then we cannot resect. The people that are resectable mostly will have good underlying liver functions and a lot of times would be underlying hepatitis B patients. In those patients, resectability, the main assessment would be to look at what is the future liver function of this patient and is the patient well enough to sustain major surgery such as an epitectomy or segmental resection. Um, this is used by volumetrics and we do have certain predictive models that we use that we can obtain at least 40 to 50 percent of future liver remnant volume in a patient who is preferably a chance to be So in the patients that we're not able to operate, what are some of the, the modalities that we could treat them with? So this would be patients that are either not fit for major surgery. In those cases, we would look at ablative techniques which you could use when the tumors are small enough. That means they specifically should be less than 3 cm in diameter, otherwise the ablative technique cannot reach the entirety of the tumor and not too many lesions. Um, so usually also less than 3 lesions. The techniques that are available for those patients would be things like radiofrequency ablation and microwave ablation are the two most commonly used method, methods for that. There are other modalities we can add onto that such as TACE which is transarterial chemoembolization. There are newer things on the block like DEPTACE where they add radioactive uh, uh, beads into the, the TACE but there's not been much advantage when you add those things. So basically, if you cannot operate the patient because of his performance status, you look at other ablative techniques to see if you can eradicate the tumor. Then there's another group of patients that you cannot operate because of the physical tumor itself, which is too advanced, which means those patients usually won't be able to ablate them. These patients could still benefit from TACE, where we get arterial chemotherapy to the tumor itself and see whether it can shrink perhaps. This can have some advanced patients or in other senses, we can go into the certain systemic therapies we can use for these patients, such as serafinib, which has a very limited role in HCC and with a very little benefit of maybe two to three times But the mainstay of those patients is still to support the underlying liver function. So these patients have got liver pathology. Earlier, you mentioned um, fibrolamella HCC. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about that disease? Fibrolamella looks exactly like a HCC, maybe has a central scar on the scan, but they do not have an underlying risk factor. Also, it is equally uh, found in males as in females, so no male predominance, and it's usually in younger patients. You can even find it in five-year-old children, usually up to about 35 years of age. And then the other main difference between fibrolamella and normal HCC is that fibrolamella does not express alpha-beta protein, and it's got a much, much, much better prognosis. So they can have a like 75% long-term survival rate. Poor prognostic features in um, fibrolamella HC would be positive limb paranopathy in the portal um, area. So, and uh, otherwise, usually we could resect them because the underlying liver still is in good function. As we mentioned earlier, we assess this patient in the three-way function of the patient, function of the liver, and the pathology itself. And these patients usually are young and healthy, and the remaining liver is still healthy. So you could actually go to as much as only a 30% future liver in that.
You also mentioned some very rare primary liver tumors. Would you maybe give us just a few words about those just for completeness sake? The other ones, once again, are extremely rare. So don't go and read too much about them because you might see one ever. These are like angiosarcomas, epithelial hemangiomas, hepatic lymphomas, which are not resected, but rather managed with chemotherapy. Um, mainstay of the CHOP regime is now a new drug called Rituximab that we added to that. Primary hepatic neuroendocrine tumors are actually managed according to the EMIT guidelines, as any neuroendocrine tumor should be. Um, these could include a resection. And the only reason it's called the primary hepatic is when you cannot find another source for primary. How would you summarize today's talk for us? I think in summary, um, primary hepatic tumors are, are actually rare. Except for a little small subgroup of people with risk factors where you get the HCC. Um, if you as a clinician find a liver tumor, the important things are, one is to image it, two, do not biopsy it. Three, refer the patient to the specialist. Thank you very much for a succinct talk on a very wide topic. I'm sure we'll hear from you in future podcasts. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.